This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Hello, how you doing everybody? It is the next episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast, and I'm your host, Jordan Hoffman. Feel free to uh, tweet at me at at Jay Hoffman or uh, hashtag us at EngagePod. I forget to say these things sometimes. Go to Facebook, facebook.com slash Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Go to iTunes. Oh, for the love of God, go to iTunes and tell them that we're great and subscribe and do all the things. All right, good, 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 good. We got that out of the way. This week's episode is a doozy. It was recorded live at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City. If you've never been to the Jacob Javits Center, it is the size of a skyscraper just laying down. It's a very long glass building that goes on for blocks and blocks and blocks right along the West Side Highway on the water. Uh, and there's nothing around it, really. It's kind of a concrete island with a couple of real, uh, real shady-looking bars and gas stations. And then uh, there is the Javits Center where... On Labor Day weekend 2016, it was the host to Mission New York, the first Star Trek convention in New York City for decades, for decades. Uh, particularly great here that it happened on the 50th anniversary because, as you know, at the Ambassador Hotel, which no longer exists, that was where the first Star Trek episode, the uh, first Star Trek convention was in 1970. I forget the exact date. And I'm not looking it up because it doesn't really matter. 1970-something was the first Star Trek convention, and now 2016, the most recent, at the Javits Center. It was a good time. Uh, I was the main stage host for many of the events, not all of them. I, I sat with the uh, Deep Space Nine cast, which was wonderful because I was so close to my now good friend Nana visitor. She and I were just locking eyes the whole time. It was wonderful. And just, just away from her was uh, my good friend uh, Terry Farrell. And when I wasn't looking at Nana, I was looking at Terry. When I wasn't looking at Terry, I was looking at Nana. The dudes that were there, I don't even remember what they said. I was just looking at them. It was a really good time for me. Uh, the next gen uh, panel was terrific also. We had Marina, we had Gates, we had uh, Jonathan Frakes, uh, and the Vo and that whole gang. Why am I telling you this? We had the Voyager panel, the Enterprise panel, Dr. Flox was there running around. It was a good time. And you know what? It's not on YouTube, and you're not gonna see it on YouTube. Because what's the point of having these conventions if they're just going to be on YouTube? you got to get off your ass and go. That's why we do them. Sometimes we get complaints. Why don't you record the panels? Well, it's not as special if it's just recorded. And certainly we can't prevent somebody in the audience from taking out their iPhone. You know, this is America. We're not going to throw you out. But um, uh, it's not... It's purposely not put online because it makes going all the more better. And in Vegas, you can fit up to 6,000 people on the main stage. Here at the Javits Center in New York, it's something like 2,500 with standing room. And there was standing room, certainly for Shatner. So it's, uh, it's what you got to do. But there are always exceptions. And two of the exceptions are what's going to be the next two episodes of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. The first one, today's episode, is a live podcast we did with uh, Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips. They said to me, pick two, uh, pick two people you want out of the, all the guests here, and we'll see if we can get them on. And these were the two I picked because um, 
I wanted to do something that was particularly angled toward humor on Star Trek, which is something that I think is not as discussed as often as it should be. Uh, I have said many times that the thing that really put me over the edge to being a Star Trek fan was Star Trek IV, The uh, Voyage Home, which I saw as a kid in the theater. And it was a riotous comedy. It still is. And it was that humor that really drew me in as a very young lad. And humor is what part of what made uh, Star Trek Beyond such a, such a success, the Bone-Spock relationship. And going back to TOS, the humor in, in all of it really was uh, so much of what was important to me. And there's humor in all the shows. I mean, one of the funniest characters, and I, we're going to get her as a guest soon, so uh, hold on your hats. But Jerry Ryan has yet to be a guest on this show, and we're working on it. Um, the phrase, uh, her people are talking to my people, is, is actually apt in this case. So Jerry Ryan was, was going to be a guest earlier. Something fell through. It's going to happen. And I've met her, and she's wonderful. And she is, in addition to all the other things she is, hilarious. And she's hilarious on that show. At least I do. At least I think so. Anyhow, uh, so we had Ethan and Armin on, and uh, they were great. And you know how I know they were great? Because I was there. And you know what? You're going to get to hear it, too. So let's shut up about it, and instead of me yapping, let's just kick it back a few weeks. We're in the basement of the Javits. Not a very nice environment. Cold um, cinder block with, with gross lighting. Uh, the Javits Center upstairs is divine because it's got lots and lots of uh, glass window, uh, uh, glass uh, sort of a, a window. You know, it's a giant wind. Lots of windows all over the place. You go downstairs to some of the smaller panel rooms, which is where this event happened, and it's it's like being in a tomb. Nevertheless, that's where we were. So let's listen now to Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips from Star Trek Mission New York Labor Day 2016. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast with your host, Jordan Hoffman. You are, after all, irrational. So welcome to uh, our first ever live podcast of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Thank you for coming. But there is something, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here, and, uh, but I did, I did th- realize something a moment ago. If there's something else going on, you can leave, because this is being recorded. You can listen to this later. You don't actually have to be here right now. But we're glad that you're here, um, and just for my... Uh, uh, sake of mind, I'm just going to pretend that the audience is doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're listening to the show. I'm going to envision you washing the dishes, just sort of like riding the bus, uh, you know, doing the things that podcast audiences are supposed to do. A little like filming an episode, huh? <laughs> so with me today on my right are two of my favorite Star Trek luminaries and two of your favorites as well. Uh, we'll, we'll do it even though we've been chatting and you met them already. Let's do a, a formal introduction to my right, Mr. Armin Shimmerman. Hey. Cheers. Toasting you with a, an empty, empty cup. And two, a full cup. A full cup. And with the empty cup. So you have no coffee right now, Ethan. I have none. Ethan Phillips, coffeeless. <laughs> Ethan Phillips to his right, who had a cup of coffee. Now it's gone. So it, it be- We are the tallest actors on Star Trek. <laughs> Relatively early in the day, so... Um, you know, without the coffee, if we all fall asleep, that's that's that. But anyhow, so uh, later in the in the in the show, we'll call this a show. Uh, we do have a microphone set up if you want to ask some questions, but we'll just pretend that we're doing a traditional podcast. And the reason why I brought these two gents on specifically, other than the fact that I that we're used to getting up early in the morning, <laughs> that I love these chaps, is um, there is something of a theme, which is. Um, Humor in Star Trek. These are two very entertaining and humorous people. And um, uh, humor has always been a part of Star Trek. In the original series, a lot of it stemmed, I think, from the relationship between Spock and Bones, and also with Scotty, and sometimes with just whatever alien was there that week. 
Harvey Mudd. Right. Oh, Har- Harvey Mudd, absolutely. Cyrano Jones. Um, the whole gang. Um, and what happened with uh, these two characters is over the seven seasons, uh, they evolved. You know, in, in episode one, it may have been, oh, yes, this is clearly the comic relief character. And then by the end of the run, it's like, no, that's really selling it short. So I'm wondering um, if you could speak a little bit. When, when you first went out for the role, was it presented to you as, as quote unquote comic relief? Or was it more like, no, this is just a character and, and you're going to do it your way? It's easier for me to answer that question uh, because I had played Ferengi before and had screwed up really badly. Um, the, the Ferengi were never supposed to be comic, not, not originally, hmm. so, but they hired me. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> and uh, I actually, my attempt at Quark, my overall arc with Quark was, has always been, was, was always, to um, make it, the Ferengi and myself, Quark, more serious, actually. I wanted to be taken more seriously than the comic creatures that had been Ferengi on Next Generation. So um, it was a gradual path of a little bit more gravitas whenever I could stick it in. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I think the evolution came, and I, I, somebody in the audience will know, I forget the exact name of the episode, but when it first clicked with me was, uh, I don't know, you were all somewhere and you were trapped in a cave or something, and it was like, oh, I get it. Star Trek is about respecting all cultures, even a culture that you may think you know, the Ferengi, they, they obsess over money, so clearly that's beneath us. It's like, no, that's just what they do, and if that's what they do, and if they're good people, we have to respect that. And Absolutely, and, and uh, it is about respecting cultures, but, but Star Trek usually, usually is about that, about going to a new planet. Uh, Johnny would know, do I call you Johnny or Ethan? Ethan. Ethan would call you, would say that uh, on, on his show, um, uh, that they did that a lot, whereas we tended to have the cultures come at us. But, um, but it is about respecting other cultures, and eventually they got around to respecting the Ferengi culture as well. Right. I mean, by the end of the Dominion War, you the Ferengi were as uh, crux to, to everything as as anything else. Um, Ethan, was it was it something that when it when for season one it was pitched to you as and you will be the comic relief for, for this? No, show? they they never said that, they, I, and I never looked at it as a comic. I always looked just as, I don't even look at it as a character. Um, I look at it as me because if I was playing a character, I'd be acting. So I don't I don't want to be acting, and um, and I'm, I mean I'm I'm been doing it long enough to know that uh, he was certainly different from the other people uh, because they're very militaristic and they have a a kind of a rigidity being in the military, um, which, is, which is important because you have to follow orders and stuff like that to get the, everything accomplished. And Neelix did not have that uh, burden on him. And um, so they wrote to a kind of an emotionality and um, an exuberance and stuff. They, they wrote to that. I remember the audition was, um, was, was, I wouldn't say it was so much funny, but, but more, um, uh, uh, it, it, it was open and, and, and there was a vibrancy and, and a charm that he had. And uh, I, I don't think he had a lot of funny moments, but I think he had a lot of moments that, were, that were, stood out because they were so different from uh, the kind of uh, officers on that ship, you know? Yeah. He wore his heart on his sleeve and stuff. Well, I mean, the, 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 the ship was in a bad spot. Sure. The, the Delta Quadrant, as we know. And uh, Janeway, the character, Realized that if she didn't exploit the the natural Talaxian goodness in in Neelix of like this is a guy that can cheer people up, mm-hmm. she's gonna have a problem on the ship. Now you say you don't think of it as acting; you think of it as being you. If you're somewhere, if you're like in an airport and the the flight is delayed, do you feel compelled to make everybody around you feel? He does. He <laughs> does. Um, not strangers, but um, <laughs> they have to pay. They have to pay. No, I have the impulse to, I think, to uh, entertain uh, and 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 make people laugh. My father had it. My grandfather had it. Uh, my sisters have it. Um, I, it's just part of uh, the Irish Jewish background I have, um, and uh, I think that uh, um, that that. that uh, Neelix, he, he had to really make a place for himself. He had to kind of find a, be, a way to be indispensable. 
So he wanted to be everybody's friend. He wanted to be liked because he didn't want to go back to what he was doing. So he may have gone overboard, you know, <laughs> trying to, um, to ingratiate himself. And I think that that, that um, dynamic uh, was not always um, something that appealed to the entire audience. Um, but he, like you say, gradually he became, he went through some very serious things. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, existential crisis with death and afterlife, uh, uh, recognition that the fact that his, um, uh, you know, genocide was committed on his, uh, you know, many, many things that gave him the chance to, to, to be a grounded three-dimensional character. What, what is that button on your shirt? That's the Robbie McNeil fan club. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and what is the t-shirt? It's a button, it's a Robbie McNeil Fan club. Fan club on a... The Robbie McNeil fan club t-shirt. So you're planning to get those signed later today? I'm hoping. I'm hoping Robbie will sign them. <laughs> we, I, have a, I have a cork uh, Armin Shimmerman fan club that my wife is now using as a dish rag, so I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't able to bring it in with me, which is unfortunate. It is unfortunate, yes. Do, do Luckily, a, she's out of town right now. <laughs> Do you get a price break when you ask for him to sign these things? He gives me 10% off, which I'm really grateful for. The first time I saw Ethan at a convention, he was up at a podium uh, speaking, and he said something I've never forgotten. It's one of the, John, Ethan is very funny. He's very, very funny. But he said this, uh, it's just a great line. He said, you know, it's, you know what's wonderful about being on Star Trek? He said, he said I, I can now get Ethan Phillips' autograph anytime I like. <laughs> I have over 50,000 copies of my autograph in my in my house, you know. But I'll tell you the truth, everybody, you know, laughed when I told them I wanted to be a comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. <laughs> One last thing about this man's incredible knowledge. He, he is an encyclopedia of jokes. You, you ask him about any topic whatsoever, and he has a dozen jokes he can tell you, and they're not only funny, but his delivery is genius. It's, it's I wouldn't say it's, what it is, it's teretic. It's, it's just very sad. I'm, I look at everything and I think, what's a, what's a one-liner for that? Rather than how can I help this person? How can I... Is there a good one-liner for this situation? It's terrible. All right, well, let's, let's test this out here. Um, let's think of a topic. Uh, well, to, all right, so uh, tomorrow is, uh, is Labor Day. So, I don't know, a guy walks into a bar and you realize it's Labor Day and? Well, I, you want a Labor Day joke? I, don't, I want a Labor Day joke. I don't have a Labor Day no, joke. No, nobody, because you're off that day. Yeah. I have work. Oh, uh, that was funny. I have a guy. I got, okay. Have a, okay, I have a oh, guy. Let him think, let him think. I, I, I have a lot of these jokes, but I don't know if I can tell them on the podcast. <laughs> I see very few underage people here. There's one. one right do we have a parental consent to? Yes, okay. Okay, I'll, sub, I'll substitute, it's pretty blue, I'll substitute a word. I, no, you know, I can get in trouble for this, no. I the only ones that come to mind are, are things that I could get in trouble for telling. Okay. So. All right, tell you what, why don't we, from the audience, uh, think about it, and then later think about a topic that Ethan can concoct and pull out of a hat. Right? Yeah, I mean this is a great this is a great labor Labor Day joke, but it's unfortunately got. You want to write it down? It's got the F word in it. So you want to share it with me? Okay, let it you know, collaborate. He can. No, he can, uh, I can. No, I will not step on his lines. <laughs> um, so yeah, you mentioned a little bit about the uh, the Talaxian character. He was a scavenger. I just don't have another one, and it's got it's got the F word in it. Damn it. Okay, keep going. Well, you could say. Um, uh, uh, can, no, can you, this is also a joke that involves, no, I'm going to get in trouble. All right. Let's keep going here. Okay, let's keep going. Um, uh, the Talaxians were... Oh, yeah, you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but it is about working, so go on. Uh, Talaxians were scavengers, collectors. Are you, were, are you in your life? Is that something, is there, do you collect things? I'm a scavenger. And I mean, is there like a thing that you're a hobbyist of? Oh, I want to you know, collect this, that, and the other thing. Um, I collected first editions of American um, fiction from the 20th century uh, really? for a long, long time. That's a nifty, does he keep it all in the... In the... Be, besides being a phenomenal scholar about humor, John, Ethan, Ethan is uh, one of the most well-read people you'll ever meet. He, uh, he's constantly reading novels. He's constantly, constantly reading. Besides jokes, you would name a novel, he's probably read. Right. Armin, you're like my publicist. <laughs> Armin is, uh, I'm gonna butter him up. Okay. He, he, I know a lot of people and I've worked, I've done a lot of Shakespeare 
um, 14 productions in my life. Uh, I've never met anybody who knows more about Shakespeare than this man, ever, um, which he teaches. Including and, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> yeah, that's quite possible, actually. No, it's more than possible. I've had enough chats with him, I know. Okay. <laughs> Armin, which is your favorite Shakespeare play? Oh, I don't have any. It's like Johnny's jokes. Uh, I don't have a favorite. I have directed Twelfth Night twice, so perhaps that's a little bit of a favorite. But the truth is, all the plays have something interesting in them, and you just have to dig around for them, and, and you'll find quite ingenious. Are there some film productions of Shakespeare plays that you really would recommend to someone who's like, ah, I've never really gotten into Shakespeare. Yeah. What's, what's the one they should see? It's not necessarily a film, per se, but you know there's this project where they, they televise shows from England and they show them in American theaters. Uh, about two years ago, there was a production of Othello with uh, Adrian Lester and uh, Greg Kinnear. Um, I left that theater saying to everyone around me, I will never ever see a Shakespearean production ever as good as that production was. It was perfect in every way. Wow. Where was it done? It was one of those streaming from, uh, from oh, London. Greg uh, Kinnear, huh? Greg, Greg Kinnear. Uh, who uh, is on Penny Dreadful, he plays Frankenstein. Right. And, and Adrian Lester, who was one of the great uh, actors of, of the English theater. He did that play Red Velvet? Yeah, he did Red Velvet. Uh, so this is probably something that people could find. Um, if they beamed it over here, it's probably, you can get the DVD. This should be somewhere, yeah. but that is without doubt. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the legendary production of uh, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which is a brilliant production. That is a great one. That's almost like an action-adventure film. Start, start, a lot of Shakespeare start, plays are action adventure. They just don't have action adventure dolls. So. Did you like? Did you like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet? No. Can I tell you a story about that? <laughs> we, Armin and I, did a production of Hamlet out in Los Angeles, 14 years ago. Yeah. And I played. Um, Armin played Claudius, and I played Polonius. And um, Polonius is normally played as a somewhat doddering kind of guy who's beginning to lose it a little bit. And I very much wanted him to play him like Dick Cheney, you know, I, I wanted to, no, I really wanted to avoid that. And, uh, but there's a, a scene in act two, correct me if I'm wrong, where he's telling his, um, his, his mate to follow Laertes' behavior Sending in Paris. Sending a spy out to spy on his son. Sending a to spy out on his son. And he has the lines, um, uh, now I want you, when you get there, to, oh, where was I, what was I saying? And he says, uh, he, he says, yes, yes, when you get there, I want you to blah, 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 blah. And then a little later he goes, and uh, oh, where was I, where was I? And oh, yes. And it's usually played as a guy who's kind of getting a little dementia maybe. And it kind of went against the track I wanted to play, which was a guy who was really on the ball. And I wasn't sure how to do this scene, given my, the architecture I was trying to build for Polonius. And they cut the scene which is normally cut, correct? And so I didn't have to worry about it. So I'm watching, I'm watching Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, and they've got this guy playing Polonius, and he's doing them like Ehrlichman or Haldeman. I mean, he's really steady and smart. And I said, wonder what he's gonna do when he gets to the scene, if they keep it in. And they kept the scene in, and this is what he does. He goes, and when you get to Paris, I want you, where was I, where was I, what was I saying? I.e., are you listening to me? And he did that the second time, he said, where was I? Where was I? To make sure that the guy was listening to him. And I thought, well, that's, and that's an example of how you can make choices about lines to support your interpretation of the character. I always thought that was a great lesson. Yeah. It's almost like jazz. I mean, it's like you have yes. a structure, and then you yep. can riff, and you can kind of do it mm -hmm. your own way. And all, all acting is like that. No matter what part you're in, whether it's TV or film or commercials or whatever, yeah, you, you choose the actor for several reasons, but one of the reasons is how they interpret the role. If the director wants to see Johnny play Polonius that way, he'll choose, he'll choose John, Ethan. He'll choose Ethan because of that. And uh, whereas if I want to play it a different way, he won't choose me. And in fact, going back to the original question very quickly, Max, who was the runner-up for Quark, who played Ron. I didn't know that man. Yeah. Uh, we sat outside the Paramount building and, and we discussed our auditions. And, and um, Max said, uh, he knew the Ferengi's comic character, so he had approached Quark as a, as a comic character. And I said, oh, that's not the way I saw it at all. I saw him as a very serious character. And, um, and so when, when the choosing came, 
Perhaps the difference was that that Max was a phenomenal actor, after all, ended up to be the Nagus, um, uh, saw it one way, I saw it another way, and the people that were deciding, who were doing the casting, decided, okay, that's the choice we want as opposed to that choice. Yeah, it's very much like if, um, when, when you get into the audition room, the casting director chooses actors that she knows can do the job. So she brings in 10 or 100 actors, and they're all capable of it. And it's like she's showing the director a box of crayons. And she's saying, look, this is a dark purple, and this is a, next we have a light purple, and here we have a, 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 a medium purple. And the director looks, and they're all great colors, and they're all really good, but the lead is a dark orange. And they go, you know, I love the light purple, and he's fantastic, but we really need a dark purple for this. So when you don't get the role, it's not necessarily because you screwed up. Uh, you go and you do your best, but the results are out of your hands. It's like the director is painting a picture, and he wants... I want a bald guy for that who's shorter than the lead, uh, you know, so you just give it up to the gods. And, uh, and I was in the right place at the right time. They really wanted the guy who had my kind of personality or my kind of uh, rhythms and my kind of, um, you know, uh, pace and everything like that. And, I, and also I think they were just exhausted. They'd been looking at like 700 people. And it was towards the end of the cast. I was already out of the question, so. Yeah. And he was out of the question. Picardo auditioned for my role, and, um, and very much like, like Max, did a much different kind of interpretation than I did. Do you know what his interpretation He told was? me he made him um, a much sterner and manipulative, um, and uh, I'm sure he did a brilliant job, but I don't think they wanted to go that way. You know? no, that's, no, Neelix is, 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 all, is, all, is all honest. He's all on his sleeve. He's, uh, he's not manipulative at all, at all. You, on the other hand, no. So, um, uh, I'll save that question for later. Um, okay, everybody, everybody wants to hear yet, yet again about the makeup that you wore. But my question is this. In an attempt to try to think of a question you haven't been asked about the makeup 7,000 times, I'm curious about this. Obviously, they do the tests on the first day. They, they work on your head, and they get it. They take photographs. They film you. They do this, that, and the other thing. And then they say, we think we got it. And then, um, it's the first day of shooting. They put it together. What I'm wondering is, you guys are both trained actors. Did, was there a time where they left you alone with the makeup for like some time to get used to it? Because it doesn't form the character a bit. I mean, I mean the, you know, the ears, the, the teeth, the, the, the whole nine yards. Did you get any of that? Or was it like, we got the makeup and you're on stage in three minutes? We got the makeup, we're on stage in three minutes. <laughs> Um, before I played Quark and I played Ferengi, that was the case. You're, you got the makeup and you're on, and they had, they had screwed up, and that's why most of the Ferengi have veils in the back. Right. Uh, it, it's not because oh. it's any choice. It's because when I was made up, they went, oh, the clothes don't go all the way up to the back of the head. Uh, so, and I had to be on stage in three minutes, so they, they went and got a piece of material and a stapler gun. And, uh, <laughs> and I heard this... <laughs> thinking that's what they're doing in the back of my head. Um, and that's why the Ferengi wear veils. It's not because it was a choice. It's oh because you had to be on stage in three minutes and we had to cover up the gap. Uh, but for, for me, because I had played Ferengi before and I knew the difficulties of the makeup, I told Michael Westmore, the brilliant uh, creator of all the makeups on Star Trek, I said, I need certain things. If I'm gonna do this for seven years, um, if I'm gonna do this for seven years, I need certain things in the makeup so that I can, I can withstand it. Because um, when I started playing Ferengi, the Ferengi makeup was right up against the head. So, um, uh, I have large ears, that's probably why I got cast. And um, so what happened was they pinned me in like this and they were laid flat against my face for 16 hours. And uh, that was painful. After about 10 hours, that was enormously painful. And so I said, you have to, you have to create pockets for mm -hmm. my ears. And, um, and they did, which resulted in, in my head, the, my quark head was the largest Ferengi head on the oh. set. <laughs> which is powerful too. Yes, now tell, tell, them, tell them about our, our competition for years about who had the worst makeup. 
Well, we, it's, that's common among all prosthetic actors. You know, they're always going, you know, mine's worse than yours, you know. Um, but mine, uh, I didn't, and this is honest, I didn't know Neelix was a makeup character. When I auditioned for him, they, they described him as a humanoid, which I, I, I don't know enough about Star Trek, so I thought it was a guy who had like an oid hanging from his head. <laughs> it's an oid. Um, but um, it wasn't until I was cast that they said, you're gonna have, a, you know, you're gonna have to come in and have a makeup cast on. And uh, that was cool, you know, I don't mind. Um, and uh, and it, I didn't really see the makeup until it was literally applied. And, uh, and even then I didn't see it because I'm blind as a bat. And they gave me the prosthetic, uh, the, the, the contact yellow. lenses, yellow contact lenses. I put them in and I, this first time I saw Neelix. And I went, wow, that's a beautiful, beautiful job. Uh, really very well done. And it, and it had, um, Neelix's temples are yellow. And when it was first done, they were pink and we had to go to Rick Berman, and Rick Berman said, no, it looks too much like a wound. Make them, make them yellow. So they changed, that was really the only change they did. Really? Yeah. But for years, uh, Ethan and I would, um, would say, oh, yours is worse, no, yours is worse, no, yours is worse. But eventually, <clears throat> Ethan got to play a Ferengi. And, uh, well, I had actually played one before, I, on The Next really Generation, yeah. So I knew, uh, yours is warmer. Yeah. Yours is warmer because it's thicker. But mine is um, stickier because there's several pieces that go on. And so, you had the contact with And the contacts, and, the, and, and it's, so mine is a lot harder to remove. Mine took an hour and 20 minutes to remove at the end of the day. And mine took an hour. Yeah, so it's, it, it, none of it's pleasant. Just go home, put a mattress on your head for a day, and you'll kind of see what it's like. You know. That's the worst part, is like you're done with a grueling day, and I know that some of these production schedules were nuts. You were working, and then you were doing reshoots on, on all the stuff in second unit, and then everybody goes to gets to go home, and you have to sit for an hour. But you day. believe me, you want to because if they don't take it off properly, your face will bleed. Oh. Um, so they have to use a very dense uh, product called isopropyl myristate, which is a, a, a one of the things that goes into makeup. Um, you know, and it and it it de it detacks, whereas alcohol would just like dissolve, but it would dry your skin. And they would do they would do that process with guest stars because they didn't give about their faces. Right, right. You know, I remember guys coming in. You know, and at Is the that end, a Labor Day joke. No, but <laughs> thank you. That's my Labor Day joke. But they'd come at the end of five days. They'd be bleeding, and they go, "How come you're not bleeding?" I said, "I'm a regular." <laughs> in the contract. I'm not supposed to bleed all over the place. If you get real close to Michael Dorn and look right here, there's still, I believe, still there, slight uh, a pigmentation loss in his skin uh, where, it's, where his beautiful black face, there's little tiny marks of white where he literally, from all the years of pulling off his makeup, which he did by himself, which he was told not to do. <laughs> and that's Michael all over. Um, but he would tear it off, and he literally pulled the pigmentation out of his skin. Oh, my God. Wow. He's 11, 11 seasons as Worf. There's, uh, yeah. You're going to want to tear it off. 11 seasons. <laughs> oh. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. Um, well, you know what? We, we, we do have some time for some audience participation. This is like a smaller crowd, a more mellow crowd. If anybody has any questions, which is something we don't normally do on the podcast because it's not usually people in the studio. We have one brave soul. It's going to ask for a Labor Day joke or maybe a, a different holiday joke. Why don't, why don't you go ahead, sir? Um, my question's for Armin. Um, coming back to a point from earlier on in the, in the discussion about the arc of the Ferengi, um, you know, as we said, there was sort of a, a development of the, the human characters learning to accept the Ferengi and that maybe their sort of high-minded 24th century ideology was not fully realized. Was that an intentional choice by the writers, or was no. that something where the actors were saying, hold on a minute, you know, you've created this show about a scenario in which humans get along with everybody, but 
we're treated like the comic relief and, and, and sort of, you know, in some ways internalizing the writer's kind of 20th century ideology and not fully sort of developing that out to what it should have been. Thank you, you've answered my question. <laughs> uh, but it's exactly true. I, I don't think they intentionally meant to do that. I've written a novel called The 34th Rule, which deals with that, which is that uh, it was, I believe it was subconscious. I, I think they saw, they saw humans as the ultimate being. And then perhaps underneath that are Balkans. Uh, and then they, in their own minds, made races sort of hierarchical, each one more advanced than the next. We, the Ferengi, being somewhere at the bottom. Um, and it is why, and, and so I, I think as they watched my performance and Max's performance and Aaron's performance and Jeffrey's performance and uh, Ethan's performance, um, they began to respect the, the, the culture a little bit more. As I've always said in my defense of the Ferengi, the Ferengi are the most moral um, race on Star Trek because, you, you may find that hard to believe, but they do have a code of ethics. Um, they do believe in, and for the most part, except perhaps for Ram, um, they, they, they try to adhere to that. And, and it is their code of ethics, and, and, and they are following their culture. It may not be your culture, it may not be the culture that you're used to. You may frown upon that culture, but it is their culture, and they do their. My character did his best to to be to be religious. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's funny that the, the Ferengi will, you know, they'll they'll, they'll screw you out of a deal, but not necessarily. Well, they'll do it. They'll they'll do it in a way that like there's the right way to do it and the wrong way. Like I feel like if if you just make profit. But you do it in a way that is, you know, antithetical to, to the, you know, the rules of acquisition. Uh, then that's just then you might as well not have done it. Right? That's right. Yeah. There, there, there are correct ways to do it. The, the, the best the, the the goal is to make profit. And I venture to say there isn't anybody in this room or anyone listening to this blog who doesn't want to make a profit. Uh, you may not want to do it in the way the Ferengi do it, but there isn't anyone here who doesn't want to make some money. If we didn't, we wouldn't be sitting up here on the dice. <laughs> um, so it, it's just a matter, it's the great thing about Star Trek, we all know this. They are fables about investigating our own humanity and what we think about and readjusting ideas, tenets that we believe in and asking the question, do you really believe in it? Is it really the way you see it? Or is it possible, given a conundrum, that perhaps you might go in a different direction? That you might think about an alternate answer? And, and we don't give alternate answers, we just pose the questions. So that's what we're doing. Cool. Why don't we go to this side here? We really appreciate you guys being here. I think a lot of folks don't give you guys enough acting credit because of the makeup, and I think a lot of non-Trekkies don't give you guys the credit that you deserve for all the acting that you do. So I just want to throw that out there. Uh, those you. of us who are actors on a more amateur level definitely appreciate that. Um, but my question actually is mainly for Ethan. I wanted to know, what was it about Benson uh, that we all grew up watching that turned to be such a proving ground for Star Trek? Both you and uh, Renee came out of that show and went on to be Star Trek legends. Uh, with, and of course, um, you know, Mr. Abergenois had his own makeup issues as well. But it's kind of funny, both characters. I grew up watching both you guys on, as a kid. There is the there primordial soup. All comes from Benson. It all comes <laughs> weird. And then if there's a cool Benson story you could throw in, because there aren't Benson. Well, it's interesting, because Didi Khan was, was cast as Quark's mom, but couldn't do it because she couldn't tolerate the prosthetics. Neither could Andrea Martin. And Andrea Martin had to leave, too. It's, it's not everybody can deal with that makeup. A, a lot of people can't do it. Um, because of claustrophobic issues, um, I, I don't. I, I think it was a coincidence that we both ended up I, I, a very funny coincidence. But I think um, Star Trek is a very heavy dialogue show. I mean, there's a lot of action in it, but 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 their dialogue is precious, and they're very proprietary about it. And people like Renee and myself and Armin and, and all those people on, on on Star Trek have come from a theater background, where we 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 have to um, be Shakespeare straight. 
We have to keep, we, 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 we honor dialogue, we honor the writer, and we try to make what they give us, uh, you know, work for them, um, because the playwright is always the, 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 the beacon. Um, Whereas some shows, uh, which I've done a lot of, they, they encourage you to improvise, make it your own, you know. But in Star Trek, you couldn't do that. If you wanted to add a new word, they, you, they called the writer's building and you had to wait. Because they, they, so I think because of our theater background, it just happened to be part of that. But, um, and that's not to denigrate anything about any other kind of acting. But Star Trek did, did usually choose theater actors for uh, their roles. Any funny Benson stories? <laughs> this guy loves Benson. He wants to hear more about Benson. Benson. Just, just one. No, I think he just wants to hear the theme song. He doesn't have a Benson story, but he has a great Labor Day joke. <laughs> no, you know, when, we, when we started Benson, Captain Crunch was just a private, okay? <laughs> I, I remember because we, we, we started the first week, and uh, history was not a subject yet in school. <laughs> I have no, I can't remember the funny, oh, the funniest, the only thing I remember about Benson is I'm a gum chewer. I chew gum all the time. And right, you know the kitchen? Do you remember the kitchen? And that's where everything happened in the kitchen. And uh, in fact, when, you know when, you, when a show's over, you take something from the set? You do. You, you know? <laughs> well, from Star Trek, I, 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 I took something. You took the from, entire Star Trek, yeah. yeah. I, I, I took Jerry Ryan. And <laughs> she, what? Uh, no. Um, I, I took a little a little bowl, and from from Benson, I took I took some. Uh, they had this jar in the back of the kitchen that had a cereal in it, and I took some of the cereal. I st still have it. But um, Benson O's, they were called. <laughs> right, right before I'd go on, I'd take my gum out and I'd stick it on the flat that was the back of the kitchen. I'd go on. After five years, there was a huge gum tree that I had created. <laughs> And Missy uh, loved it. She just loved the gum tree. And she said, you know, and it had branches. And then I started putting magic marker to it. It was a tree made out of gum that was colored. And that's a little unique Benson story. <laughs> Nobody knows. We'll give you a awesome. well, You know, we, you were talking about uh, uh, dialogue on Star Trek. If I'm not mistaken, uh, you guys didn't have too much of the quote unquote techno babble or trekno babble. Techno babble. You, you, uh, you, Managed to avoid that, but not you had some of it. I mean, there must have been a couple of days. Were were, were some of your colleagues uh, complaining about it and saying you lucked out, you don't get to do any of that? And then the day that you if they came, even tried, we'd say, "Hey, how many hours are you in the makeup chair?" <laughs> <laughs> and then there there had to have been a few occasions where you did have to sink your teeth into some of the, the techno babble. Both sets of teeth, yes. <laughs> um, what were those experiences? I mean, how as a was that a different? Skill set you had to use to say, "Oh, now I see why they're complaining." Because this is this is rough well, stuff. Well, it's like just you had to put a little more memorization uh, effort into it because um, the thing with with techno babble is that um, you have to remember that you still want something. You're still trying to communicate something. You have a need. You have an action. You're trying to change the person you're talking to. Just because it's medical or uh, technological doesn't hide the fact that you're still um, a, a, a creature who is. I always ask, why is the guy still in the room? Why hasn't he left? That's the actor question I always ask. How come he hasn't left the room? Because he still wants something. So regardless of what the language is, you have an action to perform. So it's just a little bit more memorization, that's all. Have either of you had a chance to see the latest Star Trek movie that's still in theaters? I have not seen it. The new movie, and listeners of the podcast know that I'm a, a, a big fan of it, uh, even though I was a little suspect of the second one, has the best techno babble scene in all of Star Trek. It's right at the end. Every character, the way Simon Pegg and Doug Young wrote the script and Justin Lin directed it, every character, you know, everybody saw it, you know the scene, it's right before the music. And every character has to say something ridiculous. We have to re-quantify the phaser mix of the blah, blah, blah. And the camera zooms in on their face and then another one turns and it's cut together like a dance and then they go. I don't know what the hell they're saying, but somehow I know, somehow it makes sense they're gonna push a button and go boom, is what it is. Um, but the way it's done, and I, I think it's Simon Pegg, who was a fan first and became a writer for Star Trek as a dream, said, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do this to the 10th degree, and it's, it's a marvel. So That's it's, great. Yeah. if you get around to seeing the third Star Trek film, uh, when you get to the end, you're gonna see something special that uh, I think as actors you'll get a kick out cool. of. Um, on this side. Hey guys, thanks for coming, appreciate it. Uh, my question is, so if your two characters had met, what would their relationship be like? I would have taken him for everything he was worth. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mary Neelix was a scrap dealer. He, he's maybe not as easy as you'd think. Oh. Yeah. Easy enough. Uh, I think we'd... Uh, it depends on what the writers would write. <laughs> Should we improvise a scene? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, uh, Quirk. <clears throat> I've seen you before. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> wait, wait. Let me offer you a drink. <laughs> you, you <didn't>... Half price. <laughs> uh, on this side, sir. Hi. Um... Before you mentioned about bringing a lot of your own personality to the character. Did we say that? Interpreting. <laughs> um, but it made me think of one of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite episodes, with the Magnificent Ferengi. We, um, at the end, there's a scene, the part where you and uh, Quark and um, Nog chuckle about that there's a Vorta walking to a wall and he's like, can someone shut him off? I don't know if you remember Biggie that pop. scene. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, that seemed, not that you were breaking character, but it seemed very natural. It was like a very off the cuff, you were laughing, it was like almost you couldn't contain it. And I always wondered about that scene because after talking to you briefly yesterday, it sound, I, maybe I was like, that's, that's just Armin, that's not the character. So you, Well, uh, the Magnificent Ferengi, for, for Ethan who doesn't know, and probably some of you who don't know, was an episode with, I believe there were five, perhaps six Ferengi all together. Um, I am by nature not that funny, but I love other people who are funny. And I had five other Ferengi who were very funny guys. Who were um, it was Jeff Combs, right. uh, it was uh, Max Gudanchek, right. it was Aaron Eisenberg, right. it was uh, Hamilton, what's Hamilton, he's passed away now, Hamilton. Doesn't matter, he's dead, go on. <laughs> and, uh, um, and there was one other one I can't remember. Uh, he was in—he was one of the original Ferengi on Next Generation, and they were enormously hilarious. So I spent most of that episode guffawing, just laughing. And the, <laughs> and the moment I stepped off camera, I had to stifle because you can't do—you can't make a noise when the shot is still going on. But as soon as it was over, I would be—I would be in hysterics, doubled over. It's funny to see a Ferengi doubled over. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's very likely that that take was after one of those takes and I was just having a good time. It, 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 when you feel comfortable enough, um, you can do that. You wouldn't do that in your first year because you're terrified they're gonna fire you. But, um, but I think that's like fifth or sixth season or something like that. And uh, by that time I was, I was pretty comfortable with the role and, and could indeed be myself more often. It was a great scene and it worked so well there. So. That, that's just popping in my mind when you're talking about that. Before. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, well Armin, there's something you should know. In Las Vegas, a few weeks ago, uh, we did a panel where we, um, because for the 50th anniversary, we've done a lot of top 10 lists uh, with, with fans. Uh, we're doing one tomorrow morning, actually. Um, and we decided to rank uh, the top 10 episodes of all of Star Trek, all next generation original series. And Magnificent Ferengi came in at number 10. Wow, great. And that was wow. a surprise because uh, it's not that well known. No. But there were some fans, that ad fans come up and they advocate for it. They argue. It's like, it's like talking before the Supreme Court. And uh, the person who nominated it gave, gave it a very good uh, argument of why they should. And everybody was like, yes, uh, we need that in there. And um, I think one of the things that, that I personally love about that episode and a lot of other episodes, listeners of the show know that I can't shut up about uh, the lower decks from season seven of TNG is because um, I love the characters so much and I think about the characters a lot. I think about the world of Star Trek and part of me always wants to know what's going on when it's not the big event, you know? And it's not Starfleet. Right, it's not Starfleet. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, Picard's in the center seat doing something major, but what's happening, you know, three doors down? <laughs> and uh, to a certain degree, that episode uh, answers that because it's a lot of the characters that, well, Deep Space Nine is, all, different. All about. All about. Uh, different. Yeah, all about that. The, the, the giant Russian novel in space, as I like to call it. I love it. that analogy, by the way. <laughs> Hamilton Camp, by the way. Hamilton Camp. Um, cool. Uh, on this side, yes, we have a question. Um, for Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, how you had Captain Sisko, Captain Janeway, uh, comparing the two, which do you think was a better captain and why? And who, if, you were in, if you were in Starfleet, who would you rather serve under and why? Who would you rather serve under uh, for fun or to get you home because there's like problems? Like who's, uh, who's a more effective captain or who's a like 
oh, my boss is a jerk. I want this other guy. Uh, stuff that will keep you alive. Okay, so you're stuck. The, the, the intergalactic excrement is hitting the fan. Who do you want to be your captain? Well, um, first, uh, I want to say of all, of all the podcasts I've ever done, <laughs> this is the most recent. Um, <laughs> When I look out at this audience and I think, you know, I realize I left more people than this in bed. Does Patty know that? No. Um, I, I suspect that I would want to serve under uh, Captain Janeway because I don't know who the hell the other captain is. I've never met him. Why would I trust somebody I've never met? So you can, you can, you can work with this person that's, that for the last seven years has taken care of you in the ship or this other guy who you've never met um, and I'll go, well, I'll go with the guy I never met, no. So to just be logical about it, that would be the way I'd go. That is a logical answer. But then also, I think that um, uh, just to push for feminism, um, uh, as Iceland uh, did re uh, years ago, they made sure that every corporation has to have at least 40% women to balance out the kind of uh, decisions that they come to. And looking at the world today and seeing um, the, the state it's in and the fact that mostly it's because of men. Um, I would say uh, I'd like to serve under a woman. I, uh, I have five sisters. I grew up with seven women in my family, no men. And uh, I just adore women. And I would much rather work under her. <laughs> I'm not trying to push any agenda. That's my feeling. Let me uh, preface my remarks by saying, what did you call Kate on the show as far when you addressed her? Captain. No, that's the character. What did you, Ethan, call? Katie. Katie, okay. We called him Mr. Brooks. Uh, <laughs> so there's a gravitas there. Now, that said, Deep Space Nine was a different Star Trek. We did not have a ship for the first three or four years. We, they only gave us the Defiant because the, the brass upstairs was upset that we didn't have a ship. So, I would actually, I would serve under Cisco, certainly. But if, if someone was in trouble, I think I'd take the more experienced captain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, it was an enormous honor to work with Avery Brooks. He is, as many of you have seen him at conventions, he is a force of nature. He's a force of nature. Incredible human being who doesn't necessarily think linearly uh, which makes it difficult sometimes. But he is a force of nature, and uh, we were, ours, you heard at our panel that ours was a quiet set compared to Next Generation or, or even to Voyager. And as I believe Terry said, uh, it, the, the atmosphere on a show is dictated by number one on the call sheet, which is the captain. Mm -hmm. and, um, and Mr. Brooks dictated a certain <laughs> attitude on our, on our, on our show. Um, before we, uh, we were really starting to run out of time before we go to more questions, I do want to ask, um, what's going on new? Yeah, what do we have to look forward to? We're, we're at the end of 2016, we're going to 2017. Projects that you're working on, theater projects, film, television, video game voiceovers, what's... Uh... Um, I'm in a movie that's in the theaters now called Purge 3. You're in Purge 3? I am in Purge 3. I didn't see Purge 3. I you know, Purge 2, Purge... One, Perch 2 was actually, of the two that I did see, was a little bit better, I thought. Which stands to argue that Perch 3 is even is the best. Perch 3 has made um, tons of money, and it cost, like, not hardly anything. So I guess it's doing pretty well. I play a bad guy, which is fun, because I never get to play a bad guy. Um, I uh, am uh, recurring on a show called Girls. I've done, like, five episodes of Girls. I just did a show this week called Younger. Everybody heard of Younger? Not for years. Not for years I haven't heard that word. Is there going to be a crossover between Younger and Girls? And I don't think so. It's a different network, TV Land and HBO. Um, but, uh, and uh, I just did a, a Good Wife uh, a couple of months ago. And, Does Daddy uh, know about this? Uh, she was fun. Um, I've done Bad Wives, too. And, uh, but, um, um, God, what a setup artist you are. And, um, you know, it's been great. We, we moved back to Manhattan I, and uh, about four years ago, and I've been working here in um, different kinds of projects than in Los Angeles. I was in uh, Woody Allen's film last summer and uh, worked with the Coen brothers in 
Lewin Davis, inside Lewin Davis, and been doing a lot of theater in New York. And Ethan was on Broadway doing uh, all the, the way, Johnson, all the way, which there. we won the Tony for. And, um, and uh, so I've been very, for a short, bald guy who can't sing or dance, I somehow have been able to make a living out of this, and I just, it shocks me every day. You know, you mentioned, the, mentioned Benson before. There is a weird thing going on right now with uh, the Coen brothers, who are probably the greatest living American filmmakers right now, and Voyager. Because, I don't know, I guess maybe you don't know this, you were in Inside Lewin Davis, which is a masterpiece. But I think it's their greatest fact, film. the BBC just did a poll of the best films of this new century, and Inside Lewin Davis came in at number 11, I believe. Yeah, true, really? Or in the top 15, to be sure. Wow. Um, it's a brilliant movie. And he plays a key. If you haven't seen Inside Lewin Davis, it's, it's definitely a masterpiece, and he's terrific in it. Um, and plays a very poignant part. He plays a, 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 a Columbia professor whose uh, son recently died, and, and a, lot, a lot going on, a period piece set in the early 60s. And then earlier this year, a movie which did not do that well at the box office called Hail Caesar, starring George Clooney, which was very, very funny. And did anybody see it? So, you know, do you remember the scene? Do you know who plays the rabbi? Robert Picardo. Robert Picardo plays a rabbi and kills. Mm -hmm. And I went and saw it. It's all that Catholic upbringing. Right. right. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, my main gig when I'm not talking to Star Trek is I'm a film critic, so I got to see it early, and, you know, his name was not, he's only in one scene, so we didn't know. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I've got my film critic hat on, and then all of a sudden I'm like, holy shit, it's the doctor. What's the going on? The geek hat goes on. <laughs> the geek hat goes on, exactly. <laughs> And uh, so it stands to reason the next Coen Brothers film has to have a Voyager member. Aww. Unless they want to switch and go Deep Space Nine and then Armin's mm -hmm. right here. They're not going to go in my direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Armin, what, tell us what, uh, what's happening in your world, uh, projects. Uh, well, primarily I've gone back to the theater and uh, recently I just uh, was in Arizona for two months uh, playing Tolstoy uh, in a three-hander. That's the thing you did at the Geffen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was great fun. I, I primarily, as I said, gone back to the theater. I helped run a theater in Los Angeles, which is doing quite well. It's called Antius. Uh, you'll see the hat on my head when I can find it again. Um, and uh, that's what I do. I, I have just done a small film with uh, Mano Interimi uh, called The Fifth Passenger, where I get to play a good guy, which I never get to play. So that was really nice. I, I, I'm not allowed to tell you the project I just did four days ago, um, but, it, but the title does have star in it. <laughs> We're very curious. Did you, did you sign a non-disclosure? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I did. Well, there, there are, uh, there's another star franchise. There. there is another star. Star Wars. <laughs> um, <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, you know, we, we have three guys standing. We're gonna do lightning round because then we gotta go. But very quick, lightning round for the last of the guys because they're standing and standing here. We we'll let them ask their question real quick. You, sir. Yeah. Hi. Um, this, my question's for Armin. Well, first off, I want to say I didn't I didn't know this was you at first because I didn't know what you looked like without the makeup. I I like you. Never watched Buffy. No, yeah. No. 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 I liked you. I I, I liked you as Kramer's golf caddy. And, and, uh, yeah. and also, well, this is, I love this episode, um, Far Beyond the Stars. Wow. Um, how did, I, I remember you were talking about makeup, like I'm sure there were times where you, you, you were used to the makeup because you wore it so long and at the same time you felt that, at the same time you probably were relieved when you got off, of, when, when it was off. Did, uh, right, uh, the, the, the episode most of you guys are without the makeup and you, Rene Bijamon, and everyone, how did, um, did, did you have a mix? Like, was there part of you that was relieved to be out of the makeup, but at the same time you missed it? Well, I spent most of my life out of makeup, so it wasn't a surprise. Um, <laughs> but, there, but there was, a, I remember my crew, the crew was working with, and this was late, I think it's the sixth season, and I remember several of the crew members saying to me, it's, Armin, it's, it's really bizarre to, to, to work with you when, when you're not in your makeup. So for them it was, but, but, but for me I went, yes, there was relief. And, um, and speaking of Far Beyond the Stars, just a little plug, that is without doubt my favorite Deep Space Nine. I think I it's it. one. It's not only great acting, um, 
a, a great opportunity for you all to strut your stuff. Um, it's just a great concept. It's just, a, it's, just it's far out sci-fi, you know? It, it's part of the genius of our writers. Yeah. On this side, real quick. All right, yeah, um, I just wanna bring it back to Shakespeare real quick. If you can compare uh, your Star Trek character to a Shakespeare character, what character oh. would that be? Good I'd say Flavius in Time of Athens was the first one to come to mind. I'm not knowledgeable enough to know if you're, uh, see, I can't, uh, I can't um, peer review that, so. Uh. Um, boy, uh, I, I never thought, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, the first thing that popped to mind was, for some reason, Polonius. Uh, no, not, not Polonius. Um, Falstaff. Oh, good. I don't know why I thought of him, because he's very exuberant and expansive. That's good, and yeah. So he comes to mind, but... Um, uh, also, maybe, uh, probably Toby Belch, I would think. For Twelfth Night, why? Um, because he's, um, he's, he's, he's very broad. I'm thinking of the bigger guys, the guys who have a lot of, uh, of personality and, and, and lay it out there. And Toby was certainly like that. Although, I, when I played Toby, I realized this is not the role that's Ague Cheek, and that's unfortunate. Ague Cheek is the role. Yeah. But in any event, those two are the first that come to mind. But I could, if I put on my thinking cap, I might come up with something more specific. It's a good question, though. The one that's often given, and so I'll give it to you now, because it comes to mind readily, is, is uh, Shylock. Mm -hmm. uh, not so much because, because he's Jewish, that's not really important, but as I said yesterday, it's because he's the outsider, mm -hmm. and, and, and all the Venetians don't know what to do with the outsider, they hate him because he is an outsider. Mm -hmm. I don't think the people hated the Ferengi, but, but there wasn't a lot of love there either, so, um, uh, so I would say Shylock. Hmm. Thank you. Good question. That was a good one. It's all on you. You got to follow up. So uh, um, it's actually another uh, Shakespeare hey, question. Yeah. I didn't because I never the Shakespeare con. I, well, I didn't realize that you guys were both so into it. And um, Armin, you're always going to be Principal Snyder to me. Uh, and so I got to ask you, what were your thoughts on Joss Whedon's uh, Much Ado uh, About oh, Nothing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's very brave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because it was all done in his house, so that's that's quite brave. Um, some of the some of it was quite good, um, but his premise that Beatrix, Beatrice, and Benedict had been lovers at one time, and, and you know, the film starts with him getting out of bed. Um, I found that uh, a little really, really, Joss. Um, uh, it's it's not. I was asked earlier what some of my favorite Shakespeare films are. I like it, but I wouldn't put it anywhere near the, the top of my heap. Um, but, but God bless him for doing it. And when you say he shot at his house, I mean, I think it was while he was cutting the Avengers on his off hours. It was like uh, a side project, and then he got his friends together. And but what Joss had, Joss had a group of people, of which I was never invited to, and I miffed at that. But... Um, <laughs> He had a group of people who used to come to his house on a regular basis, and they would discuss the play, and they would work on the play. And, and eventually, I guess somebody suggested, why don't we shoot a play? And uh, that's how the movie got made. Yeah. Hmm. All right, cool. Well, listen, um, I want to say thanks to our guests right here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And um, for those of you who uh, continue to listen to the podcast, uh, Thank you for doing so, and, and tell all your friends, and, and tweet uh, the hashtag EngagePod, and like us on, you know, all the, like us on Facebook, like us on other, so just like us, just walk around just liking everything you see, and, and, um, and uh, tune in again next week, because we'll have more good stuff. Thanks, thanks again to Armin and to here. Armin has one point he has to make. If we shadows have offended, Think but this, and all is mended. That you have merely slumbered here while we visions did appear. And of this weak and idle theme, no more yielding than a dream. Come, take my hand if we be friends, and Robin shall make all amends. <laughs> Very nice. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Armin Shimmerman, and your Shakespearean recitation, and Ethan Phillips for your dirty jokes. Now, he did whisper 
the joke to me that he didn't tell on stage. Now, here's where it comes to it, Engage listeners. I will tell the joke the next time we do our next recorded podcast, which is not the next one you hear because we're going to be banking something else. So that means two weeks from now, I will reveal Ethan Phillips's filthy joke if... Oh, what should I make you do? What should I make you do? If at least 100 listeners tweet something with the engage pod hashtag. All right. If 100 of you do it, anything, a picture, a declaration of love, a meme, something, a Spock, something, a quark, whatever the hell you want. If 100 of you, I'm going to count. If we get 100, and that's not a lot. Only 100. If 100 of you do it, I'll tell you the joke. He didn't tell me I could, but he didn't tell me he couldn't either. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we'll get you uh, next time. Until then, live long and prosper. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.